You're listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church in Newton, North Carolina. By God's grace and for His glory, we're striving to be a community of disciples who are growing in trust, growing in love, and growing disciples. We pray you'll be encouraged to deeply love and trust our Savior Jesus Christ through this ministry. We hope you enjoy the sermon. friends. Thankful to have this opportunity to open up God's Word with you this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Chris Cerrito. My wife and I have four children, all adults now, five children by marriage, all adults now. (laughs) My wife Sherry and I, we were married on April 8th, 1993. And a few months later, moved here uh, from Florida. And although my wife has picked up a little bit more southern twang than I have, you can tell by our accent, among other things, that we're not from around here originally. In fact, that was the most common question we received from people who first met us, uh, usually right after we asked what liver mush was. All joking aside, we love this area, and after living here for 27 years and raising our family, we feel like this is home, like we're actually Southerners, if y'all will have us. And more important than this, looking back on life, we're glad to see God working in His providential wisdom to help us, not only in the good times, but in the difficult Looking back on your life often brings perspective that you didn't once have. Have you found that to be true in your life? Maybe you've heard that hindsight is twenty twenty. Today, in fact, many things seem to be right and worth fighting for. And then we find out later that they're wrong. Which teaches us that it's often easy to understand something after it has And so this is what we're going to see from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 this morning. The Apostle Paul gives thanks to God for his redemptive work to establish the church. And then he reflects upon the fruit that God is bearing in the church to the glory of Christ. And as Paul encourages the church through his letter back then and praises God for what he's done, he shows us today how God works to redeem a people and to build a church and to manifest the glory of Christ through the church. So my sermon title is The Living Church from 1 Thessalonians 1. If you have your Bibles handy, please open up with me so you can follow along as I read. We'll stay in... 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 primarily today, although I may mention other texts, you can stay right in this letter. I'm going to read chapter 1 in its entirety, so follow along with me. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father. 
knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Please pray with me. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Your gospel, your power to save the lost and to sanctify your people, your son is able to keep us from stumbling, causing us to persevere through every trial in life, sanctifying us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We praise you, Father, and we pray that grace and truth would abound today in this place. We pray that your people would be sanctified, that they would understand more of who you are and know you more and love you more and obey you more. We pray, Lord, that for the merely religious, that they would be brought to a genuine saving faith in Christ by your kindness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we've come to a wonderfully rich text in God's word today. And as you can tell by the greeting in verse one, that this is a letter from Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. Now, I don't know what thoughts go through your mind when you hear the word church, but I find that there is much confusion among Christians regarding the church. And without a biblical understanding of the church, we are left to understand what the church is and the purposes of the church by our own experience in the church or by the church, or even how the word church is used. So my hope for us today is to grasp a clearer understanding of what the church is and the purpose of the church from 1 Thessalonians 1, from God's perspective. And so I want you to notice first that the living church has a union with Christ in verse 1. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul clarifies here that he is writing to the church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we see here is an inseparable union between God and his people. And it's fascinating to me that God connects the inseparable union of himself and his people in such a small word like in. Do you see that in verse 1? But the way the word in is used here is slightly different than in our language. So we would say that we're in a building right now. But this can change very quickly. You could start throwing tomatoes at me and we would not be in the building anymore, at least I wouldn't be. 
but it's very different in verse 1. This is more like uh, me saying that Carmen is in my family. This connects more to the church being in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what happens to me, no matter what happens to my wife, no matter what happens to Carmen, she is still in my family. And so the union between Christ and his people is fixed and secured this personal relationship that he has, and it cannot be changed. And of course, this has more to say about the very character of God than anything else. Writing about the inseparable union between Christ and his people, Martin Luther said, By faith, you are so cemented to Christ that he and you are as one person, which cannot be separated, but remains attached to him forever. Think about the life-altering effects of Christ's union and his people. Consider Romans 6.4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Paul testifies about the gospel's work to regenerate the hearts of the people in Thessalonica, And he mentions that in chapter 1, verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. God redeems dead sinners to life, and this causes them to walk in the newness of life. God not only sovereignly chooses his people, as you can see in verse 4, he carries his elect through to completion. Look at chapter 5, verse 23. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved, complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. So God just doesn't save a people and then leave him hanging. If you look at this text, we have a picture of God working to sanctify the lives of his people and to carry them through every challenge and trial that life brings, causing them to persevere, to be complete in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you. And because of this union with Christ, a new life joined with him will bear the fruit of his righteousness. It will bear the fruit of his works and his sufferings. And this sounds a lot like those abiding in Christ from John fifteen five. Verses 4 and 5 says, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It's comforting to me that the creation, the ownership The salvation and care of the church is first and foremost, verse 1, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So just as a side note, notice how Scripture uses the Savior's full title in verse 1. 
This further inscribes into our mind the inseparable union between Christ and his people and emphasizes every aspect of his redemptive work. He is the Lord, the creator and sovereign king who made us and bought us and rules over us and whom we owe our absolute commitment to. He is Jesus, the God who became man and walked in the filth of this world. He was tempted, tested in every way, yet he never sinned. He is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, who suffered, bled, and died in the place of sinners and rose from the grave, fulfilling God's redemptive plan to rescue his people and build the church. The Lord Jesus Christ has promised to build one thing, to build the church, and all believers are part of it. 1 Corinthians 12 teaches us, teaches us this clearly in verse 13. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So if you have truly turned from your sins and trusted in Christ, it doesn't matter what your nationality is. It doesn't matter who your parents are, but that God comes and baptizes his people by the power of the Holy Spirit into one people, into the global church. And yet, in the New Testament, the most common reference to the church is the local church body. So listen how Scripture shows the Lord's perfect work of arranging the church in 1 Corinthians twelve eighteen. But now... God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired. Isn't this beautiful? God works to bring a church together and organize a people exactly how he wants them, just as he desired. Which tells us that if you are a member at FBC committed by membership to this church, that you have not not arrived here on accident. God is working to build a church. The living church's union with his people, or the living church's union with Christ, is wrought by his blood and actively working to display the glories of Christ. Now, before there was a church in Thessalonica or anywhere in Europe, the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy were sent there by the Holy Spirit while in Asia on their second missionary journey. Their work, their evangelistic work in Thessalonica, it began in the Jewish synagogues preaching the gospel. In Acts 17, 2 and 3, it says that they reasoned with them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ who had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Interesting that this was the point of their reasoning. This was the mistake of the, relig- the religious people at the time not trusting in Jesus Christ the Messiah, but in themselves. So eventually their mission included an outreach to the Gentiles as well, as we see in Scripture, and many people were coming to the faith as God worked powerfully to save through the gospel. Now this made some of the Jews and some of the Gentiles that they were able to gain their attention, it made them jealous of the work that was being done with the gospel. 
They were bloodthirsty for Paul. And to protect the believers in Thessalonica, Paul fled at night to Berea. Now, during his time with the church in Thessalonica, he grew a fond affection for the church. And if you read 1 Thessalonians, Acts Acts 17, you can see this. The longer he was away from the church, the more concerned he was for them, especially under the circumstances that he left in and the suffering that they were going to endure. Paul eventually sent Timothy to find out about their faith, and this is what we see in chapter 1. Paul shares Timothy's report back to the church here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look at verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by you, beloved by God, his choice of you. Christians in Reformed circles often separate out the doctrines that we see in scriptures. The doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of sanctification and the doctrine of glorification, the doctrine of justification. But what we see here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 is a full picture of what salvation looks like in scripture, almost from beginning to end. So I want us to consider three characteristics of the living church from verse 3 that flow from their union with Christ. So first, the living church has a faith that works. Genuine repentance and belief in Christ always result in a mighty work of God to save a people. And God's salvation always changes the very desires and the character and the activity of the believer's life. Every believer, as Jesus says in Matthew 7, 17, is likened to a good tree that bears good fruit. Not performing good deeds to become a good tree, but doing exactly as the Lord Jesus has created them to be. Ephesians 2.10 teaches us this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The very nature of the salvific work of God in regeneration by the Holy Spirit manifests the glory of Christ in a changed life, in a faith that works. Now this may sound like flattery from Paul to the church to highlight their faith that works, but it's good and right because one, faith without works is dead, James 2.17. And two, a faith that works is the fruit of genuine repentance. Many evangelicals today would say that repentance means to turn from your sins. But biblically, it's a lot more than that. Repentance is also more than stopping from doing bad deeds or sinful deeds and doing righteous deeds. Genuine repentance is not merely a change in who or what you serve, but the very nature of your worship that motivates your work of faith. And we can see a few examples of this in chapter 1. Look at verse 6. 
you, the church in Thessalonica, also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So as you can see, the Lord is working in the life of the people to change their, the pattern of sinful life to that more of Paul and of the Lord's. And despite the suffering they endured, in chapter 2, 14, it says that they suffered at the hands of their own countrymen, their own people, their own neighbors were persecuting them. They found joy in the Lord. Here's another example in verse 7. So that you, the church in Thessalonica, became an example to all believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So they went from uh, commendable imitators of Paul and the Lord to Christian lives worth imitating by other believers throughout the country. And so I would imagine when this letter was read to the church as Paul instructed them to, that they didn't feel a pride in themselves, but that they were humbled that their faith in Christ was actually noticeable as they turned from their idols and trusted in Christ. I imagine that they were humbled that it was visible in their lives and the lives of others that people were actually reproducing, imitating their faith in Christ. And you can see the links of discipling here in these couple verses. You can see the faith being transferred from one believer to the next, both teachers and learners of God's word. Verse 8 shows us another example of their work of faith. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. The gospel of Jesus was being proclaimed repeatedly throughout the countryside by the church. So I want us to notice in verse 8 that the evangelism team wasn't commended. Nor was church leadership, but instead the church as a whole. And if you clearly look at this text, the believer's faith in God is made known to the nations by God's word being proclaimed and moving forward. And this shows us that the gospel of Jesus Christ comes in power through the Holy Spirit and then it works powerfully through the life of the believer. In fact, the gospel became so widespread, known through the church, that Paul says he had no need to tell anyone what God was doing in them. Why? Because the church was making Christ known to all. And if Christ has given you a desire to make known, to make him known, your works of faith are going to cost. It's going to take your time. It's going to take your efforts. It's going to take trusting in the Lord Jesus to carry you through. Our culture shouts for us to avoid suffering and to pursue comfort and entertainment at all costs, but the Lord Jesus calls his church to follow his lead. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. 1 Peter 2.21 
Christian, if your works of faith are costing you, keep working. Keep working for the glory of Christ. Keep suffering for his glory, even when it's hard. Even when it costs you a friendship. Even when people are difficult. Even when it doesn't seem like fruit is bearing with the gospel going forward. Keep working for his glory. The living church has a faith that works. See also from verse 3 that the living church has a love that labors. Now, love is a tricky word to understand. Pastor Tommy led us faithfully in this last week to get a broader understanding of what genuine love looks like. And yet, the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2, is working overtime to distort genuine love and godly expressions of it. And I'm convinced that worldly love tempts the flesh, and that's why it entices us so much, and it seems so convincing. Gifts, words of affirmation, quality time, physical touch, and acts of service. These might have their place, but the genuine love of God is much more than this. To understand this, as a starting point, look at verse 3. What kind of love does the living church give? A love that labors. Now the word love in this text means an exhaustive kind of toil. We often associate labor with financial gain, but this kind of laboring, exhaustive love in the church is for the gain of others and the glory of Christ. And you can see a glimpse of, of Paul's laboring love in chapter 2, verse 7. But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardships, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And so we've already noted that the church in Thessalonica, God was working in them to imitate the faith of Paul and the righteousness of Christ. And so it's no surprise that Paul testifies about their love that labors like his in chapter 4, verse 9. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. My mother was a hard-working single parent trying to raise four boys. And when she would leave for work, she would often leave us a list of chores to do, which I would begrudgingly work through. Without this list of chores, as a child, I probably would not have done anything to help. Paul is saying in this text 
that he does not need to write a letter to the church because God was supernaturally working in such a way he did not need to tell them to love each other because they were actually doing it. And the testimony of this was reaching the entire country. We love the Christian love loves because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19. Notice as well, and this is equally surprising, how Paul encourages the church at the end of verse 10. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. I think Paul is saying something like this. Don't get comfortable in the routines and the minutiae of life. Keep growing in your love for one another. Don't allow your love to grow cold. Work this out in real and practical ways among each other. And by God's grace, Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica again a year later and listen to his praise from chapter 1, verse 3. He says, because of their love toward one another that grows ever greater a testimony of the faithfulness of God and the necessary result of being a genuine disciple of Jesus is our love for one another in the church. Our Lord teaches us this in John 13, 35. He says, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So much damage is caused to the church by gossip and bitterness between church members. Yet God calls the church to draw from his endless supply of love and mercy to graciously give one another at all times. A love that is selfish, that is selfless, not selfish. A love that rejects isolation. A love that rejects selfish ambition and a love for one another, as Jesus says, validates authentic Christianity to a fallen world that rejects Christ. And of course, the believer's love is but a mere reflection of the Savior's love displayed on the cross. Romans 5, 8 says, But God demonstrated his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is a picture of God's love that the sinner had no right to. They didn't deserve it. They didn't earn it. While we were helpless and hopeless and rebellious, Christ loved us to death. And this is the very kind of love and situations to give love that the Lord Jesus calls the living church to give. It's easy for us to love people who love us, but it requires Holy Spirit-like love to labor with it in the church. The final mark of the living church in verse 3, as you can see, is their steadfast hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. The word hope in verse 3, it's not an uncertain hope. 
like you hope your car will start when you leave here. This is a very different hope. This is a confident hope. This is an expectant hope, expecting that God's promises will be fully realized one day in Christ that hinge upon his never-changing character. This is the kind of hope that Christ brings about. It's not a hope that we can build on our own. It's a, Christ, it's, a, it's a hope that Christ has already established on the cross. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, 1 Peter 3.18. And so I want you to notice from verse 3 that the product of the Christian life, their steadfast hope, is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so once again, we see the inseparable union between Christ and his church, and it's bearing the fruit of steadfast, persevering, enduring, unwavering hope in Christ. And when we forget our absolute union with Christ, we lose our identity with Christ. And with a lost identity in Christ, also go our affections. We misplace our affections. We misplace our desires, and we give them often to a myriad of trivial things. Along with our affections go the use of our time and the use of our money. And sinfully, our hope is given to other things that can never bring hope. And so I think the scripture is calling us to search our sadness, to search our disappointments, to search our fears, and to search our doubts, and you may find misplaced hope. Proverbs thirteen twelve says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. The Christian's union with Christ brings all of what we hope to be accomplished in Christ, in the future, into reality today. The hope of Christ enduring the judgment that our sins deserved at the cross. The hope that Christ will rescue us from God's wrath to come. The hope that he will return and gather his people with him forever in heaven. And this is not a hope that sits idle as if we were at a bus stop waiting to be picked up, but instead a hope like it is in chapter 1 verse 9. It's a hope that serves the living and true God. In verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. When Paul arrived in Thessalonica on his second missionary journey, before God saved the first person in all of Europe, every Jew that he reached in the synagogues trusted in their own religious heritage or in their own good works 
for salvation. Their hope was placed in the, in the salvation that they thought they could bring themselves. Satan is working the same lies and deceptions among myriads of people. Our only hope is in the sinless life of Christ. His death on the cross in our place and his resurrection proving that he has vanquished the consequences of sin and death and to hope in his expectant return to bring us to him. Edward Mott trusted in Christ in his 20s and in his 50s he became a pastor and sometime during his pastorate he wrote this remarkable hymn My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, My anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Please pray with me. Father, we are glad that you are the worker of salvation. We are glad that when you come you bring irreversible change to the believer's life. We praise you for the church's union with Christ that can never be separated. It can never be broken. We praise you for your power that works to sanctify your people. Even when we are unfaithful, you were faithful. We are thankful that we can trust in a never-changing, all-perfect and wise God who will do what he says he will do. Father, I pray that you would bring these realities to a new understanding in our hearts. Lord, I pray that they would carry us through the day-to-day course of life, however difficult it may be, and may we place our only trust in the Savior. We love you and we bring you praise and we ask that you would do glorious things in us and through us for Christ's sake. In his name we pray, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the First Baptist Newton podcast. If you want to learn more, check out our website at newtonfbc.org. We'll see you next time.